0: I'm Matthew Woods, host of Leading Out of the Woods, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com.
1: Hey, do you need help in becoming more effective at teaching virtual classes? Well, NVTA, the National Virtual Teaching Association, has a semester program that is college accredited and designed to help you become more successful as a virtual teacher. A few of the topics that we'll be focused on are establishing relationships in the virtual environment, virtual instruction best practices, differentiation in the virtual classroom, and managing virtual resources, among others. NVTA is an affiliate partner with Teaching Learning Leading K-12, and there's so much there to help you be successful in the virtual classroom. Uh, So take a look, go to my website, stevamoletto.com, slash sponsors find the mvta logo and click on it to take you to their website happy learning hey welcome back steve here and today i'm talking with dr janine janeau who is the founder of the Balanced student and the author of the disintegrating student struggling but smart and falling apart and how to turn it around so much to learn today thanks for listening and uh, by the way it would be so cool if you went to my website stevenmeletto.com slash reviews and left a review could you do that for me thanks so much Enjoy the show. Boone Titanium Rings, found on the web at boonrings.com, is an affiliate partner of Teaching Learning Leading K-12. And I'm also a customer. I have this really cool ring that's got these carved pistons and and stars in it. I love it. They make rings of titanium that are carved, laser-cut, and engraved, as well as they have inlays of many types of materials, like meteorite, acrylic, wood, carbon fiber, and so many other types. They also have special collections that are incredible designs. One of the top sellers are the gamer rings, the stealth series, and the black zirconium. As a note, they also make earrings, pendants, cufflinks, and for you musicians, they make cool trumpet mouthpieces. Love it. Go to boonrings.com and at checkout, use my code, capital T, capital L, capital L, capital K, number 12, and you'll get 10% off your purchase. So go check them out. I love my ring and I know that you will love yours. Hey, Steve here, and my podcast, Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, is hosted on Podbean. If you use my affiliate link when you sign up for podcast hosting, you will get one month free. I've been on Podbean for the whole existence of my podcast since November of 2013. In that time frame, I've had nonstop service. I've had easy access to assistance when I needed help. I've been able to upload unlimited pictures and podcast episodes. The dashboard is easy to use. My Podbean community has grown tremendously. Looking at starting a podcast? Well, use my affiliate link to get one month free of hosting. Go to my website at stephenmoletto.com sponsors and click on the Podbean hosting link to see what plans are offered and choose the one that you like the best. You'll be glad you did.
0: You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show.
1: Dr. Janine Janot has more than 25 years of experience working with children, teenagers, and young adults in both public and private school settings spanning preschool through college. She holds a master's degree in school psychology from The Ohio State University and a doctorate in child and developmental psychology from the University of Connecticut. Since 2010, she has been a college instructor teaching psychology courses and freshman seminars. In 2014, Dr. Janot founded The Balanced Student in response to the struggling students she encountered both in her college classrooms and in her own home. As a mother of three, she has witnessed firsthand the challenges our children face, quickly becoming a familiar pattern of good students falling apart. As their grades decline and their work piles up, their anxiety spirals out of control and they become what she calls a disintegrating student. Today, with escalating numbers of students failing their virtual classes during the pandemic, disintegrating students have become a nationwide crisis. In her book, The Disintegrating Student Struggling But Smart and Falling Apart and How to Turn It Around, Dr. Janot explains the phenomenon of the smart-turned-struggling student from the viewpoints of both the parent and the student. She provides an in-depth look at the four primary influences that can trigger a student to disintegrate. With a realistic and supportive voice, along with the latest research and short sidebars with real student experiences, Dr. Janot gives parents timely, practical tips to get their kids motivated, confident, and inspired. Janine, thanks for joining me today, and say, say hi to everyone.
0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for
1: having me. Well, glad to have you here, and it's awesome talking with you, and uh, you've got a great book and very timely. And, and what I'd like to do is, uh, before we focus on your book, The Disintegrating Student Struggling But Smart and Falling Apart and How to Turn It Around, uh, in your bio, I read that you've been a college instructor since 2010, teaching psychology courses and freshman seminars. You know, after working with freshmen over 11 years, what is something that you learned from them that will always stay with you?
0: Well, I, I, that's such a great question because in, it's sort of in our um, vernacular right now because of Ted Lasso. So I always think of be curious, not judgmental, which is kind of the resurrected Walt Whitman quote um, that Ted Lasso has made very popular right now. But I, that is the thing that stands out to me that I I took away from teaching those college students. And that was I would walk in because um, at the time when I started teaching college, these kids were my kids were high school and younger, all the way down to elementary school, and so I had a lot of expectations in my head about what was going on with college students, and I was just wrong on so many levels. So I learned very quickly to start off every semester with getting to know my students. So we would take a whole class, class and a half to hear. You know, I would do things like tell me one truth, one lie, and in the interesting thing I took away from that was I would look at a student and the human brain makes a judgment about somebody in about one tenth of a second. So I'm all there. I've got, I've got an idea about who you are. And then you tell me stuff like, you know, I might look at one student and think, Oh my goodness, they look so uncomfortable out of place. This might be tricky. And then they say something like I speak seven languages. It's like, okay, I have some new information to go with. So that, Idea of really being curious about our students and our younger people, about everybody really, but particularly if you are in teaching or in parenting, that curiosity piece is game changing.
1: Very much so. That's cool. That's very cool. That's you know, and I, and I think about. I mean, when I did my undergraduate work, I am trying to think. Uh, I think I could count on one hand the number of professors that asked me who I was. <laughs> <laughs> but
0: it helps. It helps in the long term. I mean, I, yeah. I lost a little instructional time, but I actually, I think it helped me be a better teacher to my students.
1: Oh, I can imagine. That's cool. I mean, the professors I got to to know uh, and uh, who got to know me, you know, did so because they did things outside the norm. You know, they they had uh, events where he came. Well, my my all time favorite one. He he had events where uh, we went and watched Civil War reenactments as a group and and uh, things like this which was really cool. cool. <laughs> and yeah. uh, um and he'd invite people to come to that and uh you'd go do that and then afterwards you went to his place because he had a property with a lot a big piece of land and he would uh, uh make um lunch for everybody which that was a pretty cool thing. And then I had another one who because of his specialty, you know, really kind of connected with me um in in research I was doing. So he helped me with that research and that's how you, you connected with him because most of them didn't reach out unless <laughs> Uh, otherwise it and, ended up for bad reasons. They got to know. you. <laughs> yes.
0: And what we know about motivation is connection is one of the key ingredients. You have to be connected to be motivated to learn and do so. That's huge.
1: It sure is. That's, that's, that's what an awesome uh, experience to have there is you, because I'm, I'm sure that then that helps you remember um, them along the ways as you're interacting with them as much as th- them thinking it's cool that you get to know them. Cause I know that's, I'll remember those two who, who, took time to get to know us. Awesome stuff. Fabulous. So uh, let's get focused on your book, The Disintegrating Student, Struggling But Smart, Falling Apart and How to Turn It Around. In the introduction to your book, by the way, I could have spent the whole amount of time we have, right on your note to parent. All right, to the parents. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so, so I'm good. I it was I had to go back and eliminate some of the stuff I was asking. But it, it goes like this. You know, in, in the beginning, you have this note to parents, and this is from that section. I came to realize that our primary and secondary school systems are a big part of the problem, as the focus in education has shifted from the learning process to learning outcomes and products. Could you explain why you included the note to parents and put in context the comment I just read? <laughs>
0: Absolutely, and and I'm glad that you felt that way about the note to parents. It's only a few pages, but the crux of the issue of why we even have disintegrating students is really in that one sentence you just read. Because what I'm talking about there is what our achievement culture looks like today, and it's very um, success is very data driven. So our students are in the mentality of check the box check the box for the next grade, for the next, you know, homework or something, just getting all the things done to get to the next thing for them. And, you know, regardless of whether it's getting into high school and taking a certain um, trajectory of courses or getting into, you know, a certain college, they are of the check the box mentality. And what I see in students is this, um, They're not really particularly concerned with or interested in the learning. They're very interested in that product, what I need to show to get the next thing. And how that affects all of us in this achievement culture is parents, educators, administrators, we're all responding to the pressures of this achievement culture. So, that means if, if we're in a culture, that means we are adopting. It's, a, it's like a mental habit of, of a way we think about um, school and education. So our, our assumptions that go along with it then impact how we think about it and how we behave within that culture. So that for parents, that means we're concerned about all the checking of the box and the teachers are concerned and the schools are concerned. And so everybody's in the same Feeling these same pressures, and that is driving all the things from a parenting perspective, a teaching perspective, um, and a student perspective that is causing our kids so much anxiety and really degrading the type of learning they're getting out of their education these days.
1: Which is so frustrating because it's, uh, you know, you see it, and if, you know, all you have to do is pay attention to what your children are doing. <laughs> um and not not be blind to it cuz you'll you'll realize it and it's it's one of those things that uh you know becomes very apparent that uh you know if you're going to help you got to figure out how to reduce some of that uh some of that stress i mean i one time i worked at a high school that uh, started at 7:10 in the morning i mean that's when the first class started and uh the, the sad thing is is that uh you know, there were benefits to starting that early because that meant that kids then also in the afternoon, then they're wide open to be able to do the things that they do, um, from, you know, the extracurricular to, to work and so, so forth. But the opposite, the other things there too, it's like, when do you sleep? <laughs> um,
0: yeah, that's a great question.
1: <laughs> and so it became a lot of first period, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. and, uh, um, but, it's just so much stuff and you get into this in your book and I, and, and I think your book, it, it's, it's just, it's right on the head. So your book's called the disintegrating student. Uh, tell us what's a disintegrating student.
0: So it was a, a, a term that I coined as I started doing academic coaching. So when I started to see um, at the point where, My youngest was in elementary school. I had a middle schooler and a high schooler and I started teaching college kind of all at the same time. So I had this bird's eye view of what was going on. So I decided to help students through academic coaching and what I didn't, I guess I really didn't know what to expect, um, as far as what kind of students would show up, but who was showing up to see me and asking for help were these really bright, high achieving kids who had hit a wall. So... These are the kids who in elementary, maybe even middle school, just kind of showed up. You know, if they were in class, they learned everything. They got their homework done in class or on the bus, uh, got good grades without studying, putting very little effort in. So they were super easy, you know, just kind of a joy to teach and pretty easy to parent around school. But at some point, a lot of these really bright kids would hit this, I call it um, a rigor tipping point, a point where the rigor starts to become so overwhelming and the challenges become greater and their responsibilities as they get older become more and time is a factor and they don't have the skills necessary to manage all this increase and so that's the wall they hit and all of a sudden their grades start to you know they become kind of an inconsistent student at first so the grades might fall here and there but it becomes it gets to a point where parents usually say something like hey what's going on you know this isn't like you and the student usually says i don't know which is very frustrating to a parent but they're legit they they do not know what's happening and it's scaring them like beyond anything and this is the point where parents and students usually get in this this um this place of misunderstanding and miscommunication because they're making different assumptions about what's going on. The parent usually thinks that the kid's in control because they're offering, like, do you need a tutor? Do you need um, these resources? Uh, They think their kid doesn't care anymore. Like, do you not want to go to college? Because clearly if you're going to get C's in this class, you don't want to get into college. And the kid on the other hand is usually thinking, okay, my parents care more about my grades than they do me. Which is a a reasonable, I've heard that so much, I keep thinking, I kept thinking, why do students say this all the time? And they say it because as parents, we're so concerned about what we're seeing, we talk about it a lot. So the majority of our interactions with our kids is around that academic piece. Um, So that's where they get that. They also don't want to disappoint their parents, even though they act like they don't care. They do. Um, They worry it's just happening to them. And their biggest fear is that they're no longer smart. So, and that, they've internalized being a smart kid for a very, very long time. And when they start to get feedback, that, yeah, end of the line for you. (laughs) You can't be smart in 10th grade or 11th grade or in college. They don't know what to do with that. That's very threatening. Um, So that's kind of in a nutshell what a disintegrating student looks like to me.
1: And. What's interesting? It, all of it is interesting because it's. There's. We're getting ready to go through a couple of chapters. where We get into these different influences that the, the kids have uh, the, that put pressures on them in different ways. You know, one of the things that uh, is in. You know, I I went to as a high school principal. I went to places that needed something fixed. All right, I, I marketed myself that way, and whether I do it over again or not, I don't know. <laughs> but because it's an interesting life you pick out for yourself when you do this, but. You know, and one of the schools in particular, one of the issues, that they, a huge issue that they had was the kids felt like the only thing the school cared about or their parents cared about were their grades and their test scores. And I was brought in to reconnect the kids to the school and to try and change that feeling. And that is a, you know, what a, a sad feeling when, you know, when the first things, what the kids are asking for is for something that's not focused on test scores. <laughs> and yes. Can, yes. <laughs> you know, and I, I'm like, I can do this. We can, <laughs> we can make this happen. And, you know, and it's, it's a, it's a cool thing. And, you know, it, it, one, one of the things that, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to explain to adults when some people think that, uh, it shouldn't matter to kids. The only thing it should matter about is, you know, preparing for what's beyond school or whatever. And, and, um, it's sad because they're taking away that part of childhood. That because uh, there's, they can be, they can do these other things, and they can be smart, and they can have, have their academic. And you can, there's kind of like a whole ball of wax there that needs to be experienced. And if we only focus on the certain aspect of it, it's sad.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it, it just from that college standpoint too. What I was seeing in the college So I, um, I taught freshman and sophomore level college classes. But so when I was teaching those freshman level ones, so I, intro psych a lot of my students came through already having AP psych behind them like the year before. And could they remember anything? It was shocking that they, I mean, just, there was like nothing there. It was like they never took the class. So, and I think that's an outcome of this sort of check the box mentality. I'll do what I have to do in the moment to get the thing. And that includes cheating, which is widely accepted among our students as a, An acceptable method to get these boxes checked because there's a lot of them um so that's how they compensate um but but the outcome is okay what did you actually learn what have you retained what are you interested in knowing more about where does your curiosity take you now and i just felt like that part was was not as um evident as i would have hoped it would be by the time they hit college
1: Gotcha. Yeah. You, you kind of hope they break free of that. Cause I, you know, it's, it's funny. I think about, um, uh, something that I experienced when I was a kid, cause I was, I, I had, I kind of drove myself. All right. I that bad English there, but <laughs> I, you know, pushed myself. I had things that I wanted to achieve and, you know, my parents helped, helped me along that path, but they really didn't, uh, understand how I was going to get there. <laughs> and mm-hmm. they just wanted me to be able to get there. And so, a little, quite a bit different from many of the parents that I had to deal with as a principal, who already had everything planned out, all the classes that they're going to take, and which classes they got to have in order to make the applications to. And I'm pretty sure some of them already had the applications filled out when their kid was, a, you know, a freshman for um, whatever school it was that they wanted them to go to. And
0: well, possibly,
1: uh, <laughs> um, you know. But I think about it because things were important to me. But wow, I when I started working with kids in the schools um, as their principal, I didn't realize how many of them would have, I mean this just this push to to get whatever this is that they wanted to get. Mm-hmm. And,
0: and, and you, you just described that issue of control, the difference between you and I as a kid, where we we were motivated to do what we wanted to do and our parents were in the background we had control over that and our parents were letting us have control over that. Whereas you just described the parents who are in there kind of planning it and taking the control away from our kids. And that just, again, that's, that's a piece of, we need for motivation. We need to feel that control.
1: Makes sense. I, I experienced that a lot as I watched, uh, just, just a side note. It's like, uh, I can remember full well going, you yeah, know, I'm good with that. Uh, um, the grades I've got, I got other, you know, as, as we progress along, cause I kind of kept track of them. Boy, as an adult, I ran into kids who not only they keep track of them, they, you know, I can't. And I'm obviously we're talking about a group of kids that are very focused on what they've got to do, which is where that checkbox thing comes from. Just tell me what I got to do so I can get this done because they knew they had some classes that are so challenging that they've got to get the checkbox ones out of the way. Yep. And if I can do it, then I can do it. And it, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, it, it, causes so much angst, I guess, is the word I'm looking for. And, you know, uh, chapter two of your book is titled Developmental Influences. Would you agree that as parents and educators, we need to learn more about developmental influences? Can you explain what that is? And I love this chapter.
0: <laughs> yeah, I do, too, because my background's in school psych and developmental psych. And for me, that's the I, that's just a piece that's so missing is that we need more early um early childhood educators, um, developmental psychologists involved in, um, education because it is really important to understand. We're really good when our kids are little at looking at development because we can see it. It's so physical, you know, it's, they can raise their head, they can roll over and crawl and walk. I mean, it's like, ah, this is amazing. And we do a lot to kind of stand back and let them do their thing. What's really interesting is, is as our kids get older and they, you know, get into school and particularly as they shift into adolescence, there's still a ton of development going on in the brain and, you know, around sleep, um, around their their um, ability to think. So there's four stages of cognitive development. All those things are so insightful to kind of understand, oh, okay, so at this grade, you know, this, this is what this child's brain looked like. This is what their sleep looks like. Really can inform how we reach kids, um, how we educate them, how we connect with them. I think all that's so, so, so important. Um, Just to really know that, you know, as when we look at those younger kids and all the amazing things their brain's doing, that adolescence is actually the second time of like really malleable brain development so it's it's the last time in our lives where we have an incredibly spongy brain that's just soaking up tons of information and it hits after puberty when they're in more rigor but now I feel like you know we've kind of forgotten about we need to be taking advantage of that brain and we need to be have this is when they need to be making mistakes and learning from their mistakes there's so much growth Um, that can happen during this this phase of development. And I just think we have to get better at understanding that. And just from a practical standpoint, just understand that, like, if we expect a fifth grader to keep a calendar and keep track of their stuff, their brain actually is not in a phase of cognitive development that supports that. They're much more concrete. They don't have a very long time horizon. So to say, you know, why haven't you started studying for that test next week? Because next week is not even; <laughs> it's just not a part of how they their brain is operating. So we really can't expect kids to start using anything really useful to them as a time management system until about eighth grade. That's when their brain can start supporting that. So I just think it's it's just hugely helpful to inform how we deal with our children.
1: It really is. I mean, I you know one of the things, and once you, I love that example you just gave because there's so many different things that we do as adults. That we we really want it, you know. We think that we've moved on beyond, you know. One of the, sorry, I'm a former history teacher and I have degrees in history and and so I, I can, you know, I, I talk about things like, you know, in the Renaissance time frame, you know, they had these pictures where if you look at the pictures of kids, they all look like grownups just short, and you know, because that's they just thought that, you know, we will smack them into remembering that they're an adult or something, you know, and <laughs> and uh you know, and it's funny because teachers and and parents they don't. Sometimes you get you get stuck in this mindset of uh, thinking that uh, they're just little they're just little versions of adults, and it's like no, that brain's still working on different things here. And that's one of the things I like reminding um, adults that I work with about is that you know they're in these different stages, and the younger ones tend to be more concrete, and then you can get a little more abstract as they get a little older. And if you don't recognize that, and then, and you definitely have your ones that are a little more <laughs> they've made that switch a little earlier. All you got to do is coach kids in some sport to see this in action. My favorite. Mm-hmm. My favorite is the youngest kids in, uh, in, in, uh, I used to coach soccer and um, when they're very young four, you know, the four and five year olds, you you run into kids who they don't want to give the ball up. Once they get it, it's theirs. You know, it's like, and even trying to get them to put it in the net. (laughs) Whereas you run into a couple of them that really quickly learned, Hey, there's a reason why I've seen people kick the ball back and forth to each other. And you can help expand that. But you know, just transferring that into the house or into the classroom and, you know, and and knowing that by maybe trying to make them figure out how to be organized is not so good of an idea before they get to that age where they're able to do it. I just, I think there's so many powerful things there. So good stuff. The, uh, you know, that's such a powerful chapter because it gets into those developmental things that we probably don't realize that we're seeing out of our own, out of our own kids. And uh, especially if we're trying to fix something that we hope they don't grow up to that. Was like us,
0: absolutely.
1: <laughs> so, um, just, just a side note: I make piles. All right. So, gotcha. so um, the uh, the calendar thing. It took me a long time. I'm better at it now.
0: <laughs>
1: there you go. Ch- chapter three is focused on individual influences. One such influence that you mentioned and explain is sleep. Like we kind of mentioned about. Uh, could you talk about the
0: importance of sleep? Well, I, I can't overstate the importance of sleep. And this is the one big, big area. And I know you know educators are aware of this, parents are certainly aware of this, and our, our kids are aware of this. They are not getting enough sleep. So the uh, National Sleep Foundation in 2015 revised their guidelines. So the recommendation for adolescents to young adults is in that eight to 10 hour range. So really if we could get any of our kids having eight hours sleep, nine would be great. Um, that would be ideal. I ask students all the time. So how much sleep do you get? The majority of students I talk to, whether it's in a big classroom setting, an auditorium, or just one-on-one coaching, I get, oh, I don't know, four or five really common so the majority of students I talk to are getting less than seven hours of sleep so if I talk to a student who's getting six or seven I'm like oh my god you're a rock star <laughs> this is amazing you must feel awesome because I think relatively speaking those are our those are our kids who are um, probably benefiting the most from from sleep and the problem is without enough sleep it's it impacts everything so, all these things like if i'm coaching a student i want to help them with time management and organization and study habits and sleep screens and stress you know sleep under rides all that stuff it's because it's it's impacting them emotionally so with lack of sleep they're more volatile they are they can be more aggressive they definitely have more anxiety so all that emotionality um becomes more problematic and physically, they can actually be more prone to injuries, they're they're already inexperienced drivers, so you add tiredness on top of that, that makes them more of a danger to themselves and others out there on the road. Their immune system becomes less effective when they're chronically sleep deprived, so they're, they get sick all the time. I mean, everybody knows who works in schools, that time of high stress around testing, midterms, standardized testing, finals, all that kind of stuff's students just show up oozing all over the place because their immune systems are crashed because they're not sleeping enough and they're super stressed. So um it just, it, I think we have to understand the realities of the sleep issue with our kids. So they, their brains are not cooperating here because their brains aren't producing melatonin for uh, like about two hours later than uh, adults and when they were younger children. So their brain starts producing melatonin, which is the hormone that makes us start to feel sleepy, it kind of kicks off the whole sleep process. So they're feeling that around, I don't know, 11 o'clock midnight. So even if they're super, super tired, they don't get that sleep induced kind of feeling to go to sleep when they should. Um, And there's also something the Sleep Foundation has recently um, put out there that I thought was fascinating, revenge, bedtime procrastination. Apparently it's a new kind of, it's not a sleep disorder per se, but it's a big problem. And it, their definition is it describes the decision to sacrifice sleep for leisure time that's driven by a daily schedule lacking in free time. So I, this applies to all of us. Yeah. You can definitely see how it applies to our students who are getting up early. Um, you know, some of them have an extracurricular in the morning. Some of them just need to get to you know school and then they're doing something after school um, often an extracurricular, maybe a job, and then when do they get to do homework? You know, Maybe they're not starting till 9 o'clock at night, and then they go, oh, my gosh, I didn't have any time to watch YouTube today or to chat with my friends in the group chat. And so that's where this, even though they're tired and they know they need the sleep, they end up putting it off to get some of this um, kind of relaxation time.
1: That, that's an interesting thing because I'm pretty sure um, I've experienced that as well as I think I've done it to myself, okay? It's like, yeah. uh, it's, cause, you know, you're like, I just want some time to read or I just want some time to watch a goofy movie or I want. And so meanwhile, your body's going, yeah, I'll go to sleep, go to sleep. You're going, no, 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 no. I want to, I want, I'm relaxing. <laughs> yeah,
0: I want to decompress. But it's also important to for students, like how I'll approach sleep with students. Because if I just say, you need to get more sleep, they're going to be, yeah, yeah, talk to the hand. Um, wh- how I approach to them is like I explain what happens during sleep and that this is when all the learning that we've had, all the information that we've taken in during a day is consolidated into memory. And this is when the brain gets cleaned out This and, and it helps you think better tomorrow. So there's so many advantages to getting good sleep. And I explain the different, you know, the sleep cycles, the different stages in it and how many you need for, you know, so I really get into it with them because then they go, oh, that's why I should get better sleep. And when they understand that, I think they're more willing to try a little bit harder to get better sleep.
1: Well, it makes sense because then it's also just not an adult telling them something that's another adult thing.
0: You know, yeah they don't they're not fans of that I've
1: learned right right <laughs> get sleep you need to why because it's an adult thing I'm telling you get some I sleep said
0: so. <laughs> exactly
1: <laughs> <laughs> nice I like that that's uh that's so awesome and I you know it's funny at it, uh, w- uh a couple of my schools I, I learned that uh it, Kids want things to connect and so forth. And so I started these like pickup games of soccer with me. And, and, uh, in one school I actually started an intramural type program that happened after school. And we had soccer and we had a couple of things. And the coolest thing about this was that the kids, some of the kids you were describing just a minute ago that, that wanted, uh, um, you know, they're, they just really need something. You know, they, they, they're, they're high achievers. They got all this stuff going on. And, uh, they really love this idea of doing this afternoon. And what they, they asked for though, is they said, can we do kickball? And I said, well, yeah, sure. We can do kickball. And it was a cool, because the number of kids that fit completely into the category that you were talking about a little bit ago about the, the test scores, but they're just, you know, they're, they got everything planned out for the future and just kind of things are kind of crumbling around them a little bit because they're worried about being smart. And they also fit this category, the idea of, you know, the revenge against <laughs> sleep or whatever, trying to make them have – they turned out for that kickball, like there's no tomorrow. And because mm. you, you didn't – you know, there's not a whole lot – you just kick the ball and you run. <laughs> and you you catch the ball when <laughs> it's coming at you. And I that's that's cool what you're talking we about. We need
0: more of that. We need more of that. We need more movement and, yeah, all that stuff.
1: Very cool. It's, uh, we really do. And it's it just – it just all of a sudden it hit me. I'm like, that's that explains a lot about why so many of yeah. them turned out for just kickball because I don't I know the rules. I know how it works. And it's it's going to about be about 30 to 40 minutes and I'm <laughs> and I'll get back on <laughs> my other stuff. So <laughs> nice. Uh, you know, before we leave this chapter, could you talk about the impact of social and academic peer pressure? Because this is an interesting aspect of what you, you get into. And I think it's important that we go there for a bit.
0: Yeah, so our our high-achieving kids hang out with other high-achieving kids. And I always knew that. I mean, just watching my own kids. But where it really struck me was um, talking to some of my student clients who, you know, like, for example, I had an art uh, student who was a high school student taking an art class. And there was a ton of stress around getting A's on these art projects. And the student was spending an inordinate amount of time, like six, seven hours on projects. Um, And she had an A in the class. She had a 92. And she was, uh, you know, her other classes, which were actually more important to her because she wasn't she didn't want to be an artist. She didn't even like art. She was just taking it as an elective. They were starting. She was starting to struggle in those classes and get very overwhelmed. And my question to her was, okay, you have a 92 in the class you told me that after about two hours, you probably could have turned the project in and gotten, you know, high B and low A on it. Why are we spending six, seven hours on this? And her response was a 92 is not good enough. Uh, it's embarrassing. My friends will tease me. It needs to be. And so I, you know, kind of followed up. What, what do you need to get on this? And she's like, well, 96, 98 would be much better. And so I started talking to other students about this and yeah, this is a whole, it's like this super high achieving subculture of kids that while they're great support, I mean, it's great to be surrounded by high achieving kids because they keep you motivated, kind of keep you focused. But then there's this dark side of this competition that's unreasonable. The expectations these kids play, uh, put on themselves and each other are really, really unreasonable. And I see that as being, um, really detrimental to these kids that get in that very perfectionistic mindset, which leads to a lot of anxiety. Um, and that long-term, you know, that doesn't tend to work out very well for them long-term. So that's, you know, that's where I see that, that academic peer pressure being problematic.
1: Well, that's very problematic. I mean, that's one of the things that, uh, I had to have, uh, in what, not all my schools In one of my schools, I had a a population that, uh, there now there's nothing wrong with what I'm getting ready to say, except the part that is the part that you will figure out. Um, they're like, you know, I really don't, I can, I can eat lunch in the hallway. I really don't need a lunchtime. I need this class though. And usually it was like a, a very advanced, uh, segment of like an orchestra or a, uh, um, or a, uh, a foreign language or you know, another language or something like this that uh, they're trying to squeeze it in so they could have this because it's really not their main thing, but it's part of their main thing type thing.
0: Right, right. And,
1: and you're going, you don't need lunch. And, you know, that's, and that all came from that, that academic social peer pressures. They're around with, the, you know, and they're realizing that, you know, this kid over here has got it happening. They're probably going to get that early enrollment, you know, um, uh, acceptance to that university where I, I I could be just a step behind them, I better get this part in. And there were some interesting conversations I had to have with parents as we <laughs> were talking about uh, the possibility of giving up lunch.
0: Yeah, and there's a there can be a real pushback I've found from trying, if you try to talk to a parent and a child about like their schedule, and is this a balanced schedule? I mean, really let's look at what a week would look like in your life. If this is what you're, the courses you're choosing to take, the job, the extracurricular, all the things you're choosing to do, where are you sleeping? Where are you eating? Because that really doesn't factor into their decision making. And I have found more pushback probably in that area than any other, because again, they interpret the stakes are too high not to, not to risk it. But you know, what I see come out of that is burnout and you know then we're sending kids off to college who are just toasty you know <laughs> they're just so done and what i've seen that really breaks my heart are the students who do that in high school and then they don't get into the college that they wanted to and then they're then they're you know it's almost depression that hits them because it's like why did i bother why did i work so hard i did everything everybody told me to do and i still didn't get into that college. And that to me is just, that should not be happening to our kids.
1: You're so right. You're so right. And it's, but it's, it, I've seen it too. it's one of those things mm-hmm. where they, they get to the point where they're like, you know, I'm, I am done. And, you know, just as a side note, being a parent, one of the things I experienced was after they have that drive and all that sort of stuff. And then suddenly the notion gets within a couple of months, do I really have to get all this stuff done? I'm getting ready to graduate. You know, I think it's time for me to experience the other side of the school, which is all the social stuff. <laughs> We're going to do it all now. And it's like, well, wait wait a second, finish first. All right. <laughs> I,
0: I mean, I know that's what I'm supposed to say, but honestly, having worked with students the way I've worked with them and raised my, my youngest just went off to college this year. I'm so happy to see them get senioritis because I think they deserve it. I really do. I mean, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm probably not the best person to talk with. I, I get them through, but I'm kind of like, yeah, you've worked really, really hard. I get it.
1: Yeah, it's cool, you know, because as a note, I I, I agree with you because it's, it's it's like to see it happen. All of a sudden you see, you realize, okay, it's happening. And this is just as a side note, this is what, uh, just as a message to lawmakers that are out there, you know, this is when you start trying to, to talk about how these tests have got to be at this certain time of the year and everything's got to happen then. When you come back and you say that, well, you still got this this last couple months <laughs> or last couple of weeks in the year, there's you, nothing you can make happen right there because they are done. And that's when you they need to done. have, you know, like a class in uh, learning how to <laughs> ballroom dance or something. And just, just, you know, and I'm being silly there, but I Baseball. mean, ball. Yeah. There we go. Kick we ball. need to just have kickball. Exactly. And, uh, make sure it's against the principal who just is not good at it. So, but, <laughs> but, uh, yes. Yeah, so I, yeah, that, that whole thing there, it's, it's very ti- timely and you see it happening and it is exciting when you see them start going, you know, I'm, I am excited. I want to do something different for a little bit.
0: <laughs> They're very happy during that time.
1: Yes, they I are like that. <laughs> nice. yeah, you know, one of the things that uh, you get into in chapter four, and chapter four is called Cultural Influences. You have a segment that focuses on changing norms of parenting. And I think this is very important for us to make sure we at least mention. Could you talk about it?
0: Yeah, that this is actually my favorite chapter. I don't know why, but I, I just really like knowing how we got here. So, when I, when I explore cultural influences, I'm really like, okay, so how did we get to this point today where we have this achievement culture and where our kids are so stressed out and mental health is such a huge issue and a piece of that, you know, so I go into lots of different forces, educational forces, policy and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to parents, what, I mean, it's really interesting to look back cause this all started in motion about the time I graduated from high school. So the early eighties, um, That was the time um, John Walsh kind of got the America's Most Wanted started after his son was abducted and murdered. Um, A lot of policy started to come into place, um, protecting our kids, the missing, you know, have you seen this missing kid on a milk carton, Code Adams, um, which is the Amber Alerts today. All of a sudden, as parents, we were getting the message, our kids aren't safe, and they required our supervision all the time. And that also coincided right around the time that a lot of um, moms were going back to work. So there were, you know, two parents working and kids were coming home from school, becoming the quote unquote latchkey kids. And again, they needed to be protected because now to be a good parent, you knew where your kids were all the time. They were highly supervised um, and we worried about them a lot. So all that started happening in the 80s and, you know knowing that we grew up sort of that free range, come home from school, grab a snack, run out in the neighborhood, come yes. back when we got called for dinner kind of childhood. We, we were seeing our kids are not getting that, you know, you can't go ride your bike down that street. Um, you can't go out till I'm home. All those kinds of things led us to basically invent the playgroup and the play date. So What that did is it made us parents, you know, instead of our kids being out in the neighborhood where we couldn't see them or know what was going on or how they were navigating social situations, we were right there with a front row seat going, hmm, that child's being mean to my child. That child's not sharing. And we were intervening and supervising where we had no business being. And we took, and out of that came this kind of relationship between kids and parents where You know, we became hyper involved, micromanaging the helicopter parent became a thing. And that was all became rolled up in this achievement culture as being a good parent. So we all did it. I mean, I'm a reformed helicopter parent. Um, I I, I still struggle on occasion. Um, But that's that's the big thing that I'd like to talk about there as to how how we, because uh, parents today will come to me and say, one of the reasons I, I need you to work with my kids is because I fear that I'm becoming that helicopter parent. And I don't want that to be my role. And I see what it's doing to my relationship with my kid. And so I think it's just really important to understand, again, well-intentioned, we're doing this because this is how we've come to view good parenting and it's our responsibility. But the unintended uh, consequences are immense. And I think we're all starting to start to reconcile what the consequences are of us taking over our kids' lives in this manner.
1: That's, you know, it's it's amazing because, you know, one of the things I I remember very fondly is the, uh, well, not so much the getting in trouble. Okay, it's dark. Why did it take you till now to get home? You know, and because he used to run around with the kids' friends out in the neighborhood and they were I grew up in Daytona Beach area of Florida and and uh, there were lots of orange groves that now are just subdivisions but <laughs> we go play Aww. in those those orange groves and uh, you know and then lose track of time and stuff like that and uh, you know and you're right I mean today it's it's so much different I mean and that's interesting what you're talking about that the coming of age of the play group and so forth and uh, cuz you know yeah there was no one intervening nor any thought of that. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it, what an interesting thought. I mean, I, not too long ago, I was uh, with a friend. We were with our kids at a uh, college campus, and we were walking across, and I forget how this subject came up, but uh, basically uh, the elder dad made a comment. He said something about how, you know, one of the things that drives me nuts, he was looking at his cell phone, and he said, one of the things that drives me nuts is how the reception doesn't work as well on this on this campus. And I, And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that does drive you nuts. There's some... And I and I said, "Well, what are you trying to do? Maybe my phone's got better reception." She says, "Oh no, I got to have my app because I'm I'm looking." He was looking at where his kid was <laughs> on the Hell campus. Yes. I mean, this is a college kid. And he's looking. He's looking at where the kid is on his app. And I was like, "What?" <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> that's scary.
0: If you want to be stressed out as a parent, <laughs> yes, <laughs> track your kids.
1: Well, well, after a while, you just learn as a kid. Okay, we got to figure out how can I, how can I make this work in my favor? Well, I'll put the phone
0: <laughs>
1: wherever I want to put the phone, and then I'll go do whatever and just you know make some excuse of why I couldn't answer or something.
0: Yeah, but think of what that does to that trust that we want to build with our kids. Yeah, you know, I, I the idea of my mom knowing where I was all the time. Oh, I don't know. As a <laughs> teenager, that wouldn't have worked. <laughs>
1: No, it's well. It's crazy. I think about you know. I I really, as a teenager, I I wasn't out and about as much. I mean, I I had so much stuff that I put on myself and different this, this that and the other, and uh, and so I stayed at home. And but for the most part, now college different,
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and uh, my my world was a whole lot different. It's kind of like that same from that movie where uh, you know I'm in college. I can do whatever I want now. Yay! And
0: yeah.
1: and all of a sudden that, that little thing went off in my brain and I can't imagine, you know, um, why is he out? It's 2am in the morning, you know, (laughs) I'm tracking him now. He's, he's Mm -hmm. driving around Jacksonville and you know, I was in New New Mexico going to school. Yeah. When we went to Albuquerque, you know, we were out at all hours of the night. It's like, nice. You know, it's, but
0: it's apparent if you see that you are not going back to sleep yourself. Because you're going to be so stressed about what's going on, and then you're going to check in with the kid the next day and want information, and that's not the way. That's not developmentally appropriate. Let's put it that way.
1: <laughs> Talk about stressful too. <laughs> but that, that that amazed me because I had heard about parents tracking their kids with these apps and things like this. Matter of fact, even there were some kids shows that joked about having you know things implanted in their kids' skulls so they couldn't. Hide it or something oh yeah, like
0: the black mirror episode that freaked me out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, oh my gosh, you know, this, this is getting to a little scary level here. You know, you know, one of the things you just talked about. Let's let's go there. I mean, in chap the beginning of chapter six, building trust. You have some awesome advice for parents, where it says it's not about me. Could you explain what this is about?
0: Yeah. So there's a lot in the book that is probably. TMI about my own brain as a mom. (laughs) But (laughs) one of the things I had to do um, at some point, this was years ago, and, and I kept this sticky note on my bathroom mirror for, I think it was up there for over two years. It said, it's not about me. And the reason I put it there was because I was, I was in that, that headspace of like, I need to know what you're doing. I need to know where you are in school. I need to, I need to, I need to, I need to They're just over involved. Um, and my, w- my approach to my kids was also from my vantage points, my, my feelings of stress and my concern. So whenever they would talk to me, I was talking to them with my 50 something year old brain and it was, it never ended well. There was always conflict and like, you don't understand. And then they walk away. It's like, okay. Um, so the it's not about me mantra that I took on was to help me remember that I need to meet my kids where they are, not where I want them to be and not where I think they should be. And I need to get into their you know, 15-year-old brain or 18-year-old brain and I need to listen to them. I need to like going back to that you know, be curious not judgmental kind of thinking. I need to listen to what they're saying from their perspective, their circumstances and not solve their problem. Which that's I'm a professional problem solver. That's what I do. That's what I that's how my brain works. So my inclination, I think a lot of parents inclination is jump in, your your kid starts going off about something, it's like, "Well, did you?" have you did you what we've got the solution that seems so obvious to our you know middle-aged brain and it what it does is it turns our kids away from us because that's they're not looking for us to solve their problem they want to be heard and understood and we have to kind of zip it and listen and reflect back that we've understood and that ends up solving a whole lot of problems and it preserves the relationship. So it's a very, very, you know, I don't say this like, well, everybody should just be doing this because it's super, super hard. I live and breathe this stuff every day. And this is, I still struggle with this. You know, I actually have it with my children where particularly my youngest, who's the one who really likes to spout off about these kinds of things. And I'll get in there with the problem solving. She'll just stop me and say, you're doing it. And then I know, Ooh, I need to listen because it's just habit. So having that conversation with your kid to let them know, you know, why you're doing it. So when we, when we, um, when we jump in with our middle-aged brain, what we end up doing is we're offloading all our anxiety onto them. So we're taking, you know, we're stressed out about the things we're worried about with them. We say whatever we need to do, we, we need to say, and then they take on all that stress on top of all the stress they're feeling. And every parent will recognize this as soon as that happens, they it makes them not want to do that thing more. So if you're t- reminding them about an application or something that needs to be turned in, every time you do it, it makes it even less likely they're going to do it because they're being more and more stressed, which decreases their motivation. So it doesn't actually even work, <laughs> but we do it anyway.
1: As a note, I think if my sons read this chapter that this would your book that this chapter would be highlighted, maybe even Xerox and copies of it placed around the house. Okay. So
0: Oh yeah, I get I get quotes from the book thrown back at me by my kids a lot. Nice. It's like have you seen on page seventeen where you are like, Okay, yeah, yeah, fine.
1: Okay. That would be bad. All
0: right. Yeah. Nice uh-huh. quote
1: back. I, I just want you to know that I've read your book and, uh, here's some things that I'd like you to review yeah. with yourself. Okay. With, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's awesome. It, it, one of my favorite chapters, cause it's so practical is chapter seven. In this segment, you give some thoughts about helping the adolescent be more productive and well. And, uh, you actually have 77 tips, which I think is cool. 77, which is a neat number too, by the way, um, Tell everybody about this chapter.
0: So I put it at the end because even though I think parents sometimes pick up my book and educators too, like, well, what can I do to help? Because that's what we want to do. Ultimately, you you really can't just and I can't do this as an academic coach. I can't just jump in and give them strategies and skills, even though I know what they are and the parents know what they are. The Parents will say like when students will start doing something I've instructed them to do or talk them into doing basically. Um, they'll say, well, I've been telling them that for years. It's like, yeah, I know, but we you didn't work on that other piece, kind of understanding where they're coming from. So the whole rest of the book gets parents to the point where then they can help, them once they understand their student, they can help them decide, you know, what are these strategies and skills might be useful and how to go about doing them. Um, and again, I mentioned it earlier, i I think it really helps to be able to, approach a, ch- a student with, this will help because this is what your brain is doing. This is what happens when you do something this way versus this way, your brain's responding, you know, in a, in a different way. So when I talk to students about study strategies, most of them say, oh, I just look over my notes or, you know, that very passive kind of work. And I explain to them why that doesn't translate into, you know, sometimes you're taking the test then and on you questions you're between if it's multiple choices, like, oh, it's between these two questions or you just have no idea how to apply the information that you passively studied. So when they can make all those connections, they can see why more a more active study strategy is gonna benefit them and they're going to try it. So um, I included all those things because not everybody can afford or have the resources to, to get somebody like me to come in and work with their kid. And that breaks my heart because I really wish, you know, I could reach every single kid. But having a book out there with these tips in it, at least I feel like it's more accessible that more people could could help students in this manner. So that's what that and seventy seven was just like I just got tired of typing. <laughs>
1: nice, nice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> There's more, but those are kind of those are kind of my, you know, go-to strategies to start students off with that most students need some help with.
1: That's awesome. I was wondering if uh, you had like a, uh- Okay. Uh, I'm going to 77. I'm uh, 77 just seems like a good number to go for. I think that's cool.
0: No, I actually thought well, I'll include 50 tips and there was no way it was like, Oh no, this one <laughs> has to get in there. This one has to get in. So it, it was literally like, okay, I'm just done.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's even better to know that. Cause it's like, Nope, there's more than 50. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I like that. That awesome chapter. You know, uh, one of the things that, uh, um, I want to make sure that I share with everybody, Janine, is you created the Balanced Student Program to help. Could you explain what the Balanced Student Program is and how it works?
0: Yeah, so that's my student and parent coaching business that I started. And again, it was just my intention was to reach out to these students and meet them where they are. And it's not just giving them the skills and strategies and help them building Build good habits. I mean, my goal, my mission statement is to help students be productive and well. And it's not just about school; it's about life. It's about you know their next, the next phase of their life. That the things that they can um, learn in middle school and high school and work on all those years are going to benefit them forever. You know how to be organized and have time management and understanding sleep and screens and stress and and again how to manage those kinds of things and and to really get some information that supports their learning going forward that was my that's my whole goal in in working with students and parents sometimes you know the student isn't willing to work with me i can you know parents can only control what they control which is sometimes a surprise to parents because they want to control. It's like, you know, you can't control your child's eating, sleeping, studying. You cannot make them do any of those things. Um, but you can control what you do as a parent. So I will work on the parent side of that with them.
1: That's awesome. That's so cool. And you know, one of the things that we're, uh, we're getting ready to close Janine and I, and I wanted, if s- someone wanted to connect with you or learn more, where would you send them?
0: Well, I have a website, com, and um, you can sign up. I do a monthly newsletter, which is called Some Thoughts, because it's literally whatever I've been thinking about <laughs> for the past month. Nice. Um, and it's usually around all this kind of stuff. Um, all the book information is there. And uh, if anybody wanted to connect with me on social media, all the links are on the website as well.
1: Very cool. And I'll make sure that those uh, links are there as well as to your balance program and uh, all, all that good stuff. So it's easy to find, uh, and, and reach out and connect to you in my show notes. So uh, I got two questions I'd like to ask you before we go. And uh, the last one is this, how do you keep going when there's so much going on that you want to quit?
0: So I think that's, so I'm a huge introvert and, you know, especially like right now with all the book stuff going on, I can get very overwhelmed with, you know, kind of being out there, doing my pseudo extroversion thing, as I like to think of it, even teaching for me is the same thing a lot. And I like to think of it in terms of bandwidth, or, you know, your tank being full or capacity. I feel like I like to check in. And when I start to feel my capacity getting about, you know, maybe under 50%, I'm just not my best self in those situations. And for me, particularly as an introvert, I have to take a break. So I very, very much value breaks, doing nothing. I sit on my porch a lot. (laughs) I I take walks a lot. And it looks like I have a lot of free time, kind of quote unquote free time. And it's not. I mean, for me, I'm thinking, I'm incubating thoughts. I get very creative during that time. And I'm ready to be a pseudo extrovert again, you know, after a little bit of that. So that's that for me. I think breaks are huge.
1: Awesome. I love that. Great advice. The uh, last one. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you, what would you say if given the chance to say, thank you?
0: Barbara Sanders was my doctoral advisor and at the University of Connecticut. And she really taught me to do work that actually interests you. So not to force things where they, and, and, at the time, it didn't mean that much to me. But what I what I realized looking back is I ended up following a very weird path to get to the point where I wrote a book, which was never a thing I was going to do or become an academic coach, never or even teach in college. All of that stuff came out of my interest in helping students not be so stressed. That was it. My own kids, their friends, my my students, that was my interest that drove me become kind of passionate about how I can do something about it. So I, I, I thank her. I, I, have thanked her for that gift, actually. She's a cool lady.
1: That's awesome. Thank you so much. Hey, Dr. Janot, thanks so much for talking with me today. Your book, The Disintegrating Student, Struggling But Smart and Falling Apart and How to Turn Around is a must read for parents and educators. Wishing you the best in all you do.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio.